Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa's Magazine. Today we're going to talk about one of the hidden gems of television history that I think was probably wrongfully dismissed as being silly, but is actually a lot more clever than people probably remember, and that's Green Acres. We're going to talk to Daniel Budnick, who wrote a book called From Beverly Hills to Hooterville, Exploring TV's Henningverse, 1962-1971. We're going to talk about Green Eggers and the two shows, its two sister shows that preceded it, the Beverly Hillbillies and Petticoat Junction. We're going to talk about how those shows were created by Paul Henning and later Jay Summers. We're going to talk about Green Acres origin that you may not know that actually is 15 years before the television show even aired. We're going to talk about all the people on the show, Eddie Albert, Eva Gabor, then all the various character actors that were on the show, Sam Drucker, Mr. Haney, Ebb, Ralph and Alf, Hank Kimball, and the rest, and of course, arguably the star of the show, Arnold Ziffel. We're going to basically talk about a lot of episodes and why we think they're so great. A lot of the surrealist comedy that came from the show, how it's a lot more serialized than you may not expect from a 1960s sitcom, and various other things. We're going to talk about lots and lots of the episodes. So if you've never seen them, there's, of course, going to be spoilers. But, I mean, it's a 50-year-old television show, so what do you expect? Uh, definitely search out the show if you can find it on MeTV or on the MGM streaming services. There are plenty of clips on YouTube. We're going to put some of the more infamous clips on the show notes, including the, all the credit gags. So thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. When they hear the dinner bell from the Shady Rest Hotel at the Jungle. Folks will walk the country mile for the chicken country style at the Jungle. But the dishes to observe are those pretty girls to serve at the junction. Petticoat Junction. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. This is an odd show that, and its creation, because it had started as an episode of the plot, which is the single form show that I do, and I had come up, decided to do something on. Uh, it was probably going to be on Petticoat Junction, and then I started seeing all of the stuff with the Petticoat crossovers with Green Acres, and I had always been fond of Green Acres as a kid, but not really revisited it much, very much, uh, you know, in the years since then. So I was watching a bunch of the credits, or the clips on YouTube, and I'm like, you know, this show is a lot more clever than I remember as a kid, and then when you start realizing just how strange and surreal the humor is, that it's something that I realize in hindsight, this is something, this is a show I should have been championing for years, especially when I used to write about metatext and referentiality back uh, a few decades ago, like when I was in school. So I was all prepared to do a single form episode talking about Green Acres and play some clips and what have you. And I went looking on Amazon to see if there were any episode guides. And there was one that was kind of old and 
maybe out of print, so I would have had to like, go to a used bookstore. And then I found a newer book that was a more critical assessment along with being an episode guide, and I saw that it was fairly recent, and then I looked to see that the author was online and on social media, and I thought, hey, I know, I'll give him a holler, I didn't know him, and I said, hey, I just you know, was reading your book and I was doing this podcast, and I was wondering if you'd want to come on and talk about it, and he said yes, and so I'm happy to say that we're going to spend a little while talking about the strangeness that is Green Acres and the rest of the Hooterville trilogy with Daniel Budnick, the author of From Beverly Hills to Hooterville, Exploring TV's Henningverse, 1962 to 1971. So uh, thanks for doing the show, Daniel. Oh, of course. Thank you. I, I will always uh, I'll always talk about Green Acres. I'll always talk about the Henningverse. So thank you for uh, inviting me on board. Sure. Um, people may have a general idea about what encompasses the Henningverse, or they may not necessarily know the whole history. So uh, it started with Beverly Hillbillies, which was yes. a, which was a big hit. Huge then, hit, yeah. A big hit. And then they created Petticoat Junction mm-hmm. as a... I don't. Was it was it was it a spinoff? Is it was it was there a backdoor pilot for it, or did it just happen? What, what it was, yeah. Paul Henning created the Beverly Hillbillies that premiered in '62. That was so huge that the network basically came to him, and it's something that rarely, maybe they still don't do. I don't know. He said, "You have your own show. Here's the time slot," and so he could literally he didn't have to do a pilot, which most shows. Do, I think still do have to do pilots. They just told him you have a time slot, make 38 episodes. And he and this and Petticoat Junction is one of those things where like where like you get where like you have a filmmaker and they make a huge hit and then the studio says make whatever you want next and then they go kind of more personal. And sometimes it puts people off, sometimes it doesn't because Petticoat Junction was based on Paul Henning's wife's uh, growing up kind of like in a hotel in a small town with a train and it's kind of based on her her life as a child and it's much more um it's much more of a regular sitcom the beverly hillbillies which is which is very if some people would say stupid occasionally it is i think of it as more satirical and funny but yeah petticoat junction is basically do whatever you want and he, he did that and then they have such a success mm. with petticoat junction they turn around to paul henning and say Here's a third time. They're giving yes. a guy three time slots in on network on CBS, nonetheless, the Tiffany Network. Mm-hmm. You know, the the biggest of the networks probably at that point. And they said, here's another time slot. Do you, what you want. But Basically, he yeah. he's so overwhelmed doing Beverly Hillbillies and Petticoat. As you said, this is at a time when networks are doing 30-some-odd shows a season. It's not the 26 that we're used to. So there's a lot more work involved in show, you know, being the showrunner, what we would now call being a showrunner. Like head writer, or I don't even know which story. I don't know what you'd call it. That. Right. Yeah. So the, the, the head muckety-muck for, exactly. for two big successes on your network. And so he basically says, I really can't do this. So he turns to one of the guys that's working on his shows mm-hmm. named Jay Summers, who um, not only comes up with this idea, but actually minds an idea from something he yes. had done f- 
like 15 years earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it was a, it was a show called it was a radio show called Granby's Green Acres, which I guess he first pitched in '48. And then in 1940, it aired in the summer for eight episodes and was a replacement for, I believe, Lux Radio Theater. And uh, back then on, on radio, there were very specific summer replacement shows, like when Fibber McGee and Molly would go away for the summer. It would say, hey, next week for the next 12 weeks, um, this guy's coming on and he's going to do a show. See you in 12 weeks. And that's kind of the way this was. And Granby's Green Acres is the same premise as Green Acres, guy from the city moves to a rundown, crappy farm in the country. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's Gail Gordon, who you might know from lots of things. I know mainly from, like, uh, being uh, foiled to, like, uh, Lucy. I was going to say show. he's – I was going to say he's best known as being, like, later-day Lucy's foil. You yes, know, yes. You know, he's I, the principal on Armis Brooks, too. Right. So he – and, you know, he's one of those guys, I think, from, like, 50s TV and 60s TV – that like you, you may you, you may not know his name, but you're like, oh, it's that guy. That guy, yes. And and it's it's he plays Granby. His wife is played by B. Benaderet, who was um, I believe she was Betty, was voice on the Flintstones, and she's also the star of Petticoat Junction. She plays a uh, Granby's wife, and then they have a daughter. And um, they all move to a farm in the middle of nowhere, and they're not too happy. And there's no electricity, and Granby doesn't know how to farm. And they have an old. Um, old farmhand named Ebb, and it only ran for eight episodes and um the original pilot is available and five of the eight episodes are and it's still it's pretty fu- it's a pretty funny show and there actually there are some gags that are reused in early green acres that are on granby's which is fun but yeah like you said jay summers um they were talking about what to do and it was basically um using granby's green acres they were able to sort of do a kind of a mirror show to beverly hillbillies it's not it's not – for years before I started watching Green Acres, I thought it was – Beverly Hillbillies was poor people get rich, move from farm to city. Rich people lose all their money, kind of like a Shit's Creek, and they go from um, city to farm. But that's actually not what happens because Oliver has lots and lots of money. Oliver Douglas, the main character in Green Acres, by the way. Right, and it's, and it's funny that we know that Beverly Hillbillies are hillbillies, but like you said, Petticoat Junction is – based on Paul Henning's wife's growing up, but apparent, but it's actually not in the South. It's based on a town in, in, in Missouri. So it's, it's, yes, it, yes. so it's rural, but it's not, I mean, I live in the middle of the country, but I live on the East coast in between Baltimore and Philadelphia. So, you know what I mean? While it's nothing but farmlands, or at least it used to be nothing but farmlands. Now it's like, you know, uh, now it's nothing but like housing developments and bedroom communities for big cities. But you know, I mean, it's it's you think of it as the South, and you know, plenty of people on Petticoat Junction and Green Acres have Southern accents. But it's really not set in quote unquote the South. Is set in quote unquote yes. the country, which is yes, like exactly. Exa- it's just, it's, oh, it's a weird distinction to make, but it's like one I think people may not may not expect. It's it's in one of the early episodes of of Beverly Hillbillies, they mention Hooterville and the hillbillies are from Bug Tussle, which I want to say is in Tennessee, but I could be getting that wrong. It's somewhere in the deep south, which is where they're from. And there's a Hooterville near them. But I don't I think in in one of the early jokes of Beverly Hillbillies is that Jethro, the big the big dumb that well, yeah, the big dumb hillbilly Jethro Bodine is in fifth grade. 
and he's going to school in Oxford. And Miss Jane, the secretary to Mr. Drysdale, the banker, thinks he means Oxford, England, but it's a different Oxford. And so I think there are two Hoodervilles in America. There's one in the Deep South near where the hill the the clampets live and then there's one wherever hooterville is that the great thing is much like springfield and the simpsons they never say they give hints um they mention that it's near chicago um but then jay summers grew up in a in a farming community in green i think greendale new york so there are people who say it's somewhere in upstate new york it could be somewhere i think it's somewhere in the midwest where exactly I don't know. Um, there are there's an episode that lists what the um, like the the uh, state bird, the state song, the state flower is, and none of it makes any sense. And then there's another episode that says who the found who the state is named after, which actually ties to why the Douglases can't refurbish their strange house. Um, and the guy who the state is named after it doesn't share the name with any of the states in the United States. So there's all kinds of weirdness. Like, where is it set? Who knows? Yeah, and and at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. I mean, like you said, it's like this. No, it's no. like it's like The Simpsons, where it's any. You know, and of course, the funny part with Springfield and The Simpsons is there's like 18 Springfields in the United States. Yes, exactly. So mm-hmm. if, even though it's you know, like arguably the one in Oregon, since that's where Matt Groening is from, but it's it could be any of the dozens of Springfields. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, so for people who don't know the plot. It is. It's uh, Oliver Douglas, who is Eddie Albert, is a rich, successful New York lawyer, and but he's always dreamed of having a farm. And you know, like, what we, I don't know if it's just in the pilot or over the course of the series, we occasionally see flashbacks of like him as a kid wanting to be a farmer. Uh, there's a scene where he's like in his New York long, long firm. And mm-hmm. he opens his desk, and he's yes. got he's got plants or seeds in his desk, and his mm-hmm. boss yells at him. He's like, "What are you doing?" And so yeah, so finally he decides one day that he's going to buy this farm in the middle of nowhere, and you know, and he drags his socialite uh, Hungarian immigrant wife Lisa, who's played by Eva Gabor, out there. And then yeah, then you then it is fish out of water, you know, all your you know, expected tropes, at least in the premise, you know, is fish out, you know, and uh, naturally, you know, she doesn't want to be there, but, you know, eventually it grows on her over time. Yes. And so she, because she's really in a way just as strange as everybody else in Hooterville. (laughs) Yes. Just, just in a different way. And, Mm -hmm. and Eddie Albert is your classic leading man, straight man who gets more and more exacerbated you know, as time goes on, because he, there's, again, we're talking about how surreal some of this stuff is, mm-hmm. but, like, the thing that I always compare it to, although I have a weird relationship with the movie, I always compare it to What About Bob? Mm. Oh, yeah. You know, where I said, but, see, my problem with What About Bob is I more empathize with Richard Dreyfus because I'm not the world's biggest Bill Murray fan. So, like, <laughs> so, I'm like... He's right. That's that's it's or it's like or it's like Hank Hill, you know, where Hank yeah, Hill yeah, yeah. is like this, you know, pillar of sanity amongst you know, and admittedly, you know, King of the Hill isn't as crazy as, mm-hmm. but there's like, but Hank's always right on that show. Whereas in this, even when he has the best of intentions, Oliver, 
you know, ends up making things worse while he tries to make them better. Yes. That's that's a running gag throughout the series is all the times he tries or accidentally not meaning to tries and helps the people in the Hooterville Valley um, and causes horrible things to happen. Yeah, there's and he's just uh, yeah, there's, <coughs> there's a number of times where it's like um, he gets elected to Hooterville City Council or, or whatever mm-hmm. it's called and things go bad or he's temporarily appointed the fire chief. Yes, or he takes over the phone company. He he in the in the very last episode that they made, not the last one they aired, the last episode they made, he becomes the king of Hooterville. Uh which which I always find very amusing. That yeah, it's very funny. And then there's one where you know, he's trying to sort of modernize the town too. There's a really funny one that I've only seen clips of, I haven't watched the whole episode, but they have a thing called Old Mail Day. Oh yeah. Where where um, Sam, who basically runs like everything in town, he runs the post. He's the postmaster. He runs the general store. He prints the newspaper, etc. They have old mail day where he gives out all the mail that didn't get delivered. Some of which goes some of which goes back decades. Like Fred Ziffel, who's you know in his sixties or seventies, finds gets his draft notice from World War One. Yes, yeah, and he's got to go. He's got it, and I think he says to Mr. Douglas something like, "Well, should I head on down to the recruitment office tomorrow?" And Mr. Douglas says, oh, "You might want to wait. I don't know." But so then Oliver writes a letter saying, "We can't have this secondhand post office kind of thing," and that and that only exacerbates all the problems because now it's like Sam has to deliver the mail on time, which means nothing else in the town gets done. So yes. then, so then, like a lot of times, everybody gets gets mad at Oliver because he's messed up the status quo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he almost gets them all arrested for uh, uh, tax refund fraud because none of them pay taxes. And when he finds out that Oliver does, when they all find out, all the farmers find out Oliver does, he um they they file taxes um for years of back you know lost money from farming, um, but they've never filed taxes or paid any taxes. So they get these huge refunds, and then the government comes after them. But in the end, with that one, it, it works out okay because Mr. Haney uses that tax refund money to open a monkey racing track, which is where you have like dog racing, but it's monkeys. And instead of chasing a rabbit, they chase a wooden banana. And the IRS is the, um, the uh, shadow partner in that. But yeah, it's uh, poor Oliver. He tries. Sometimes he tries. Sometimes he doesn't like with the tax thing. He doesn't. That's an accident. But yeah. <coughs> One of the things that I was surprised about by reading through the episode guide is that there's a lot more serialness to the show yes. than I would have. Ex- I I really noticed this when I started watching the early episodes of Petticoat Junction, which I may not have ever seen before because they were in black and white, and mm-hmm. I don't remember if the Petticoat Junction black and white episodes were in syndication or not. Not for a very long time. I want to say they showed up on TV Land maybe in the mid to late 90s or something like that. It was a very long time before they showed up. So watching it growing up, I would have probably never seen these. And, of course, Mm -hmm. one of the great things about 60s sitcoms is a lot of them are, you know, done in ones. And, Mm -hmm. you know, as one of my friends says, you know it's a great TV show because the theme explains the show. So you, you don't need to know anything about it. You can just watch it cold. 
But I did not realize that Petticoat Junction starts with like this four part serial yeah. Yeah. of of them trying of them trying to save the train. For people who don't know about Petticoat Junction, um, the premise is there's a it's in this town like it's nearby Hooterville, but um, the main character runs a hotel with you know, with Uncle Joe and her, her three daughters who conveniently, one's a brunette, one's a blonde, and one's a redhead. You know, because, you know, it's nice that things work out that way. And <laughs> and there's a train that's part of this, you know, part of some railroad line. But, like, the train only runs basically in this little valley where the town is. So it's basically like a shuttle taxi service. Exactly. Bet- yeah, between Hooterville, Pixley, and the hotel, basically. Yeah. So somebody... You know, in some boardroom, and I didn't realize it at the time. You know, I'm watching these, and I'm, we're talking about another how these shows are filled with '60s character actors. Mm-hmm. You know, the bad guy in the first couple episodes, for lack of a better term, is Charles Lane, who is another one of these. Oh, it's that guy. Yeah. From from '60s and '70s TV show. You know, he's an he's an older I'm guy. Jerk. Yeah. You know, he always plays like an officious you know, politician or lawyer or something. And, you know, he's an older guy with, with gray hair and glasses. If you saw him, you know who we're talking about. Mm. And, you know, he comes to shut the train down because he's like, yeah. Why, what's the deal with this train that only never, you know, and it's never been modernized and all this stuff. And so all this wacky stuff happens with him. And then another guy from the train company shows up. I think his boss. Yes. And he shows up. And not only is he like not a jerk, he like falls in love with Kate, and so he's well. First, they don't believe who he is, or he doesn't tell them who he is. They think he's a hobo. Yeah. Right. So he falls in love, and then it turns out, oh, I actually own the railroad, or I'm the president of the railroad, and but the trains, but now the train's broken, and he actually calls in all of his friends who are these other robber barons. You know, it's like a guy who runs an airline and a guy who yeah. runs a shipping company. It's like, and they all come to fix, the, they all just come, show up and they fix the train. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of like the end of the mini arc that sets up the show. But, you know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, in hindsight, now it would probably be the thing where they cut them all together and make them like a mini movie that they would have shown on CBS, like on a Sunday night, they could have stitched them all together and like shown this from eight to yeah. ten to get everybody caught up. But that's also the same thing that happens in Green Acres. Is yes, there's all this stuff, and once once they come to the farm, um, Lisa of course want, ha, wants nothing to do with it. But you know, they basically make a deal, and she gives him six months to either make this work or convince her to stay. And so as you're reading through watching the episodes or reading the episode guide, you can see they suddenly say, we've been here a month. You know, this hasn't really gotten any better. We've been here two months. And finally, they actually have like the big six month episode where, where Lisa decides whether to stay or to go back to New York. Mm-hmm. And and that's too that's like the twenty second episode of the show, so it would have been about five and a half six months into the run. So it actually that that's actually nice nicely timed out there. And what what happens at the end of that is that Lisa wants to go. Something makes her stay. She agrees to stay another six months. But by the time you're six more months into it, Lisa has completely acclimated to the town, and Oliver is the one who is you know having trouble 
trying to figure out how farming actually works. And and yeah, no, you're right. The the first 22 episodes or so, you know, it's just like, you know, they they get a rooster in this episode. The next one starts off with a rooster crowing. You know, this is about the next one is about putting in the system, their generator. And then the next one is them using the generator and the elaborate system they have. And it's it's a beautiful kind of world building, I guess, is what I might call it for those for the first season. But I, I think it's it's definitely true to say in hindsight that that's not really the kind of thing you saw with 60s no. sitcoms. Like it's all. like <laughs> all of these Henningverse shows are atypical, but I think Green Apron mm-hmm. is the most atypical of all of them, and I'm sure we could trace all of that to Jay Summers probably. And I guess we should al- so, yeah. and we should also mention um this is somebody who I don't think I ever really know anything about is that Jay Summers and his writing partner Dick, yes, Dick, Dick Chevrolet. Dick yeah. Chevrolet, yeah. Who, who Lisa, yeah. Call, who Lisa, when she finds out who he is, calls him Chevrolet. Yeah, um, yeah that, I think that's more or less the pronunciation. Oh, it's something. They, I think it's something like that. I never. I, I always call him Chevrolet, but then I go with what Lisa says. Yeah, see, it looks like Chevrolet. It looks like Chevrolet. But, yeah, I but, I, but Lisa, but because of all of Lisa's pronunciation issues, which is something we'll probably get to. Yeah. You know that in one of the times where she sees the credit, she calls him Dick Chevrolet. You know, which is that's, just, that's usually what I say. Yeah, right. I, I just like that. But anyway, so these two guys, you know, again, the showrunner and his writing partner write. Is it fair to say like seventy-five percent of the episodes, if not more? I, I was I, I I was actually going to count how many they wrote. I didn't get to it. I think I want to. I want to save that. I don't want to know exactly the exact number, but yeah, they're written by Jay Summers and Dick Chevrolet is at least seventy-five percent of the hundred and seventy episodes, and their names pop up in one way or another on probably another ten percent of those. I mean, there are there are very few. There's a guy named Dan Beaumont who wrote about five or six episodes and then co-wrote some with Dick Chevrolet at the very end of the series. Um, if, if we mention the Royal Purge, I'll tell you what that's about. Right. And then there was a guy named El- Elroy Schwartz, one of the Schwartz brothers, Sherwood, Sherwood Schwartz. Elroy Schwartz wrote two. Um, but a par- And then there are three episodes that are written by Jay Summers and John L. Green, who created My Favorite Martian, when Dick Chevrolet had an, to go to the hospital for an emergency for three weeks. And there was no one to write scripts with Jay, so he called up a friend. And he joined him to write scripts for three weeks. But apart, but if you look at the scripts, apart from Dan and Elroy, there are maybe 12, 13 episodes that don't have Jay or Dick's name in them in some way. Actually, probably less than that. But but don't quote me on that. But it's, it's very few. It's 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 again, it's sort of weird to think about maybe how atypical again this show is because if we look at it through sort of a modern production lens. Like it's amazing that this guy and his partner, like he's like the creator and the showrunner, and he writes seventy-five percent of the episodes when you're yes. doing thirty-some episodes a season. It's like it's an amazing output, you know. And then you turn around and you look that Paul Henning is doing similar things on his two shows. That yes, again, it's the kind of thing where we really didn't. I mean, certainly when I was a kid. Like, I would recognize the names of credits mm-hmm. in the shows, but, like, you know, like, okay, Gary Marshall is, like, the showrunner yeah. for all of, like, the Happy Days Laverne and Shirley universe. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or, and I get, like, you mentioned Shorewood, yeah, it's a little earlier, but Shorewood Schwartz had all of these 
sitcoms from the 60s, but, you know, I don't think we as viewers, and certainly me as a little kid, wasn't wasn't aware of, like, who's the showrunner and how many writers there are, and mm-hmm. probably didn't notice, like, hey, this guy wrote more, like, he's written a lot of the better episodes have all been written by, like, I mean, you look at The Simpsons, The Simpsons have had so many great writers, Yes, yes, but I think I was going to say, yeah, when when you see when you especially in the beginning before we didn't know everything ahead of time and you're starting to watch an episode for the first time and you see Schwarzwalder wrote it, you're like, oh, this is going to be either good or weird or both. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, I I, I think when I when I first started to watch Green Acres was that was when a, a run they was going through a run at the very end. And they were all Dick Chevrolet and Dan Beaumont scripts. And I was like, okay. And Jay Summers' name rarely showed up. And I thought, okay, he's like most creators of shows at that time. He didn't really write scripts. He was just kind of there. Other people wrote the script, you know. Uh, But then when the show started over again, suddenly Jay and Dick were writing every episode. And I was like, oh, wow. that's." uh..." And when they didn't write an episode, a lot of times you can tell because they feel a little weird. Like the people who are writing it don't quite. You know, they didn't quite get the full story of what the show was about. Especially a, a show as idiosyncratic. Mm-hmm. As, but it, but it's funny to sort of look at the, you know, if you fast forward to now, and they're having all these debates around the strike about how big a writer's room can be. Yeah. And you're mm-hmm. thinking, this was a, a top Two ten, a, like a top ten show, or a top twenty show for like its entire run. Mm-hmm. And it's being done by, you know, it look, you know, it's run by the same guy for, like, all six years. He writes 75% of the episodes with his partner. It appears like almost every every episode was directed by the same guy. Yeah, Richard Elbert. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's amazing to think what, like, a s- small crew this apparently was for such a yeah. big show. Yeah, it's they they used to say you on on the lot they used to shoot on you you could tell yeah when it was a writing day because Jay and Dick used to ride their bikes through the streets of the studio just like hashing out ideas and things and it was they say that Jay was the um, story guy and Dick was the 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 gag gag man and Dick Dick Chevrolet he he um I know him prior to this he was the main writer one of the two main writers actually they wrote all the scripts for the first few seasons of the Phil Harris Alice Faye radio show in the mid to late 40s which you, you hear that name and if you don't know who Phil Harris Alice Faye are you might go okay I'm never going to listen to that but listen to it it's a pretty it's kind of a spin off of Jack Benny um it's a but it's a very funny show and part of that you can tell it's the same sort of slightly strange humor that dick chevrolet brings to green acres well it's funny because again i really didn't know much about like you really don't know much about jay summers really like i was like i was trying to do like there's a lot more about paul paul henning it's a lot yeah you know i mean because he was he was also around long enough that i know like there's a documentary that i guess they sort of made about like the making of the trilogy that like his daughter is in and there's some clips from him and you know again it's benefit like his daughter played bobby joe on petticoat junction betty joe betty joe and she was around for took me took me forever to get right right i wrote a book on it the the redhead the the redhead on petticoat junction was paul henning's daughter and (laughs) and she was around for the entire series you know she was like 
I guess probably the only person maybe other than for like Uncle Joe, Uncle yeah. Joe were around for the whole series. Sam. Yeah, yeah. Because they replaced the daughters a couple. So the other daughters were replaced every so often mm-hmm. for, you know, they wanted to go off and do some. I, I guess a lot of them were singers, so they also wanted to sing and not just be on TV. And, you know, it's, again, it's the 60s. There's a lot of that interchangeability. Yes. With, you know, it's not just Dick York and Dick Sargent, but it happened exactly. a lot more than, than people may realize if they aren't familiar with 60s TV. And... Yeah, it's... But there, so, but the, well, I was just gonna say there's, so there's a lot. We know a lot more about like Paul Hennig's background and his process exactly, yeah. than we do about Jay Summers. Yeah. I think by the time people realized that Green Acres was something worth watching, it was the end of the '80s, and Dick Chevrolet had passed, and Jay Summers was very ill. And I think because he dies in like '89 or '90, when I, which is the time when they did the reunion movie, which I do not recommend to anyone. Uh, but that, but they were also um, when the show was starting to get properly recognized as, hey, it's not just Beverly Hillbillies in reverse. There's more to it than that. And I didn't realize, sort of, I guess when Dick Shevelday was doing this, he was also like in his 60s, I think, because he was like. I, I he think was I around for a while. Yeah. yeah, I think I saw he was born like in the 19 aughts. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, whereas Jay yeah. Summers was was born, you know, I think like either during World War One or post World War One. So like a good like 15 mm-hmm. years later. But mm-hmm. but it's funny. To see, oh, I'm sorry. But I was just gonna say it's it's also interesting to see guys who are, especially one. Of, so he said if he was the gag guy. To be doing such really weird, but then you find out that these guys also like worked for the like wrote for the Marx Brothers. Mm, yeah, and in the seventies they actually wrote a few episodes of Good Times, so they they kind of uh, went all over the place. But well, again, when you when you learn out that like one of the two guys writing the show worked for the Marx Brothers, the surrealism yes. makes a little bit more sense. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That so he's had it was in his bag of tools the entire like he's had this bag of tools for a long time. Mm-hmm. I think I think when you watch the show, the the surrealism really I think, or the, or just the real weirdness begins to set in after the episode where Lisa decides to stay longer. Because prior to that, there's certainly weird stuff that goes on, but it's like right after um, Lisa decides to stay, you get, for example, the um, uh, you get the uh, uh, the the double drick episode where Oliver keeps having trouble with his electricity and his generator. And at one point the generator explodes, but instead of making a lot of noises, you see Batman style working yeah, on the screen. I was going to mention that one. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's obviously that's in early 66 and Batman premiered January, I think of 66. Um, and, and at the, at the end of the episode, there's actually a moment, a great moment where Oliver goes to plug in, uh, his electricity into the top of the telephone pole. Their 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 phone is at the top of a telephone pole. That's another. There's a lot of stuff. He goes to plug in the electricity, and right before he does, it freeze frames. And the narrator mentions like a great the great northeastern blackout of 1965. And he says it plunged this states into darkness for this long. And da da da. There are many reasons people have put forward to why it happened. Here's ours. Oliver plugs it in and everything starts exploding and you get all the words on the screen, you know, you know, Drick, what that's one of the big, no, Drick, 
double drick, zzz, all these different bucka 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 bucka, all these big words up on the screen doing Batman style parodies. And that's, I think, the moment you see that, you think, okay, something's happening here. Okay, it was up to something. Okay, we we amazingly, I think, in like a half an hour, have not mentioned arguably the heart of the surrealism of the show. Arguably, the thing that people remember the sh- the the show the oh, most sure, for, yeah. and that's Arnold the Pig. Arnold the Pig. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true with Arnold because Arnold was huge, huge, huge when the show was on. But when I first started watching it in the mid '80s, I knew nothing about the show, just that it was related to the Hillbillies and so and Junction in some way. And so Arnold appears a bunch, but he's not on it a lot. He gets a couple big plot lines like where he inherits millions of dollars. He almost becomes a big movie star and things like that. He he stop, he catches crooks several times. But he, he was huge in the 60s. Like whenever you mention – if you look up Green Acres in the 60s, whenever you see Oliver and Lisa, Arnold's always there. And of course, I guess probably most famously is Arnold the Pig being referenced by Samuel Jackson in Pulp Fiction. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Where he talks about why, you know, about why he doesn't eat pork or swine or whatever. And he's like, you know, pig's got to be cool like Arnold from Green Acres. Yes. Or or something something to that effect, which may involve mm-hmm. a certain other 12-letter word that I won't mention. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's it's the thing where it's it, – well, the, the one of the great things about Arnold, among the, the running gags with Arnold, mm-hmm. again – he really is – he's Fred Ziffel's pig, his son Arnold, who was a pig. Mm-hmm. In case people yeah. think, no, we, we, we really mean the pig. Um, yes. It's like he loves watching television. He can turn the television on. Uh, he can open doors. He opens the refrigerator to get his food out sometimes. He can sign his name. We saw him sign his name once where they cut away and you see like a yes. pig hoof with a pen yes. writing his name. Yeah. Um, he goes. He goes to school. He rides a bike. Yeah. Um. He is famously. He is famously turned down once when he tries to open a bank account because yes. because he wants to buy a color television. This is I, this is one of those. Ga- you have to remember too. Like we said, Green Acres was all in tele- was all in color, but yes. Beverly Hillbillies and Pedigo Junction started in black and white. Yes. Yeah, and and, th- and there's a gag. There's a. This is the only one that I know saucer. of. Well, I'll just say, the, the only one that I know of off the top of my head is Eb, who was their handyman, who is like a big, lovable lunk. Um, he's, so he sees a flying saucer, and then yes. you get uh, a guy from Project Blue Book shows up to interview him. <laughs> and I don't know if it actually is or it just looks like, but he looks like Bob Hastings from McHale's Navy. But I know I know he was a guest star in the show. I don't know if that was actually him or not. Um but anyway, so he talks about all the weird things that the aliens are doing, and then the episode ends, and there's a close-up of the stove, and suddenly it starts glowing, and it turns green. And then there's a caption that says, for people with black and white televisions, the stove has just turned green. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that was, because Green Anchor started in 65, 66, that was the year most shows, not all of them, went to color. And you could tell the Green Acres didn't have to do a pilot because if you go to like Hogan's Heroes and Get Smart, which premiered at the exact same time more or less, their pilots are in black and white, whereas the first episode of Green Acres, Oliver Buys a Farm, isn't a pilot and it's in color. Uh, I want to make sure we – I did want to make sure we mentioned 
the pilot slash first episode because it ties into my general love of this show for its meta text is this is this is also kind of it kind of mirrors the first episode of the radio show where the first oh, yes. epi- the first episode of the radio show is about a newspaper guy who's writing a story about Mr. Granby who has decided to move to the country from New York and blah 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 and in the TV show it's like in it's like a documentary episode of a television show so it's like an episode of 60 minutes like yes. something like 60 minutes hosted by John Daly of What's My Line so <laughs> so you've got like a quasi fake newsman mm-hmm. being played by a game show host who everybody knows because what's my line is on CBS. Yes. So it's all about the history of how we you know we're talking about the thing of like how Oliver decides to buy the farm, and then there's all these clips that we said the one about him having plants in his desk when he's a lawyer, and then and so the pilot actually goes all the way through with these clips. And then it ends with them pulling up to the farmhouse. And that's how the quote-unquote pilot ends, with them arriving at the farm. And Lisa, and and they actually use a gag from Granby's Green Acres there where Granby has a daughter, which gladly, almost every change Jay Summers made from Granby to the TV Green Acres was a good one. And one of them was getting rid of the daughter. Although I like the actress who played the daughter. She was one of the, she was the daughter in, Great Gildersleeve for a while. I like the actors fine. I think no kids is the perfect way for Oliver and Lisa. Kids would have just gotten the way. Um, but they're they're yeah they pull up to the house at the very end of the first episode and the gag they use is where um, where Lisa looks at the house and then kind of looks away and goes, "Are we lost? Nope." And she looks up again. Are you asking for directions? Nope. And Oliver just has a big smile on his face. And she just keeps asking questions, gradually realizing this is their horrible, horrible home. And and then the next episode, well, I'll talk about the next episode in a minute. But, um, but I was just going to say, that's the thing. Where, and then all the weird stuff starts happening. Yes. Like, there's no furniture. Like, Mr. Haney shows up. We haven't mis- mentioned Mr. Haney yet, who is the, I guess, the lovable con man who always is the guy who's selling stuff that doesn't work to everybody in Hooterville. It's Pat Buttram, who people know was like, a uh, again, another famous character actor. Who was, was he the voice of Francis the Talking Mule? Is that what it was? Oh, he could have been. He, there's a, there's, he was a famous voice for something. I think it was Francis the Talking Mule. Um, he was one, yeah, he was one of the, uh, the singing cowboys. I forget which one, sidekick, like a Gabby Hayes type. I forget which one he was. It wasn't Roy Rogers, but I forget what he was one of them. Oh, Mr. Douglas. Right. Oh. And he's also one of the, the, the old drunk guys in Back to the Future 3 who keep heckling Marty um, uh, when Marty's in the bar. Right. So, I, again, I think yeah, I think we've – I don't know if there's anybody we have. I want to make sure we didn't leave anybody out because there's I think – Mr. Trucker. Well, oh, and there's Hank Kimball who is sort of like the Department of Agriculture <laughs> representative. but He is meant to be the link to what the, the, the Department of Agriculture who Oliver has placed all his faith and hope in. And he's he's basically God. just he, – he's I guess his main trait is being absent-minded, I guess, yes. for lack of a better term. Well, I don't know if I call that his main trait. I'd say, well, no, I call that his main trait. What would you call that his main trait? I don't know. Maybe – Maybe not. He talks like that a lot. Well, I'll just say there's there's so many people who speak in sort of 
malaprops and spoonerisms, you know, including Lisa, and then when you add in her accent, it makes it even funnier. Yeah. I, I, you know, and again, it's we probably should say the whole thing. You know, 2023, some of the humor like may not completely translate. Occasionally, yeah, there are not, not less, less so than other shows of the time. I think. I think there are only a few moments here and there that are kind of like, huh. But, but there are certainly moments. It is the 60s. And then, and then a lot of times the things that are set up like that are spun on their head. Like mm-hmm. when, when Lisa decides to go to school, to she ends up like she's in I don't know she she conveniently is in history class the day that they're yes. talking about Hungary so she <laughs> so he she can explain to the, the the teacher all the real stuff she's she's in home ec and she's like girls let me tell you what what is like really important to your husband and of course this is the this is the 60s and it's a PG so it's not what you think yes yeah but it's also funny because it's like a lot of those things are the things that Lisa doesn't do. Like yes. she 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 famously can't cook, um, and, and she she and she makes that known at several times. She says does she says um in one episode she says you remember when you married me I said I didn't know how to clean house I didn't know how to cook all I knew how to do was I forget what she says and do Zsa Zsa Gabor impersonations right which is funny because it was when I was reading through the episode guide and I was looking at all the credits I could not remember I'm like. Did Jaja ever guest star on this show? I don't believe so. Not and, that I remember. And she no, she no, yeah. didn't, but it's it would have been ta- it would have been tailor made for them to do some gag where like mm-hmm. Eva is replaced by Jaja like in an episode or yeah. or there's a there's a weird like twin switch kind of mm-hmm. Prince and the Prince and the Pauper kind of plot with with her. But yeah, but it doesn't happen. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of it's funny like. There's a weird mixture of sort of making fun of, like, sitcom tropes and also turning them on their head at the same time that, like, Lisa famously can't cook and she doesn't clean or whatever. And not only can't she can't cook, her, her cooking is, she like... Is astronomically bad. Right. I mean, the fact that she cannot make hot cakes... Yes. Cor- I mean, that's, that's like, the number one is she cannot, she cannot make pancakes correctly... Pancakes. Yes, and and the thing about the pancakes in the end is that they actually save Oliver and the other farmers twice. Once when they burn the hotcakes as smudge pots to keep the crops warm during a really cold night when a frost hits. So there's all these little pots filled with burning hotcakes. And another when they use – when they use a big, uh, they use it as something on Oliver's car when his car breaks yeah, down. Yeah, they basically, yeah, they basically use it as a gasket because. Yes, exactly. <laughs> because the way that Lisa makes hot cakes. Who knows? Is she instead of like making the little individual pancake, she pours it out in a big giant rectangle, like on the griddle, and then she uses something round to cut them out. So that you end up with like three pancakes, but you also end up with like a two by three uh, like sheet of of pancake batter that yes, looks like yeah that looks but it looks like her. Also, the other thing that it's used for, uh, Fred Ziffel uses them to shingle his house. That's right. Yes, and they use them for um, stoppers in the sink. They put a little thing on top and they use them to to stop the water from going down in the sink. Yeah, there's, she doesn't. She never learns in the sink. And one of the one of the things you the, the, the interesting thing with the show is there are certain times like like this. Like, so what does Oliver eat? 
if Lisa never cooks anything good, well, it's implied on more than one occasion that Oliver will say, I'm going into Drucker's drive over to Pixley and eat at the diner. Yeah, I was going to say, there's there's lots of rever- – yeah, there's one – I don't remember who would – this is a random clip that I saw, so I don't remember the plot. But there's some guest in their in their kitchen, and he's in a suit, so he's some kind of official somebody. And she's making them hotcakes. And, he, again, the guy tries to start eating them, and, like – he can't get his fork into the hotcakes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then and then he says, he's like, how do I eat? And Oliver says, we go to the Pixley Diner. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, the the only person who seems to be able to eat, at least possibly Lisa is able to eat her own food. I don't know, but Eb is the only one who can, he can eat the hotcakes. He, when she makes spaghetti, which is just, she takes a box of uncooked spaghetti and puts it on a plate, um, Reb loves that. She makes hot water soup, which is she warms up water and puts it in a bowl. Eb loves that. So he Eb is in his own space. Yeah, there's hired hand. He's been uh, yeah, I saw a clip where yeah they're eating. I think we all did this as a kid, but but Eb is eating the spaghetti yeah, like a, uh, like un, un, uncooked straight and crunching it. And yeah. then, but there's also one where she's making spaghetti and if she puts the whole box in the, in the boiling water. Yeah, she like, drops she, it in there. Yeah. And then there's time, and then she apparently lets it cook for hours at a time, yes. and she'll she'll be like, oh, it's done, and she'll pull out what appears to be a giant white blob that is maybe like three foot around, that's like solid white, it and then like a mini bean bag or something. Yeah, like that. and then she, not... and at least one of the times she goes to put it down the sink and he's like no you'll gum up the entire plumbing for the entire town <laughs> so she opens up the drawer next to it and just throws it in the drawer and then shuts it and she does that she does she puts it in that drawer at least three times in clips that i've seen but we're saying but we're saying there are a bunch of i guess you could call them topical episodes where lisa kind of tries to introduce what could maybe be called kind of women's lib they do try yeah. to the episode. The the weird, the most, the weird, the weirdest relevancy reference that I saw, and we we mentioned this episode, and this is I think the one that ended up on the TV in the in the TV guide best episodes of all TV, is the one where uh, Arnold goes to become a star in Hollywood, which begins oh, yes. which yeah. it, it begins with them putting on a play. In Hooterville, in Hooterville, where it's called like it's called it's called Who Called Jock Robin? It's not even called Who Called Cock Robin. I mean, yeah, yeah. You may not have been able to say Cock Robin on TV in 1960, whatever. Possibly, yeah. So Sam is playing a British detective wearing a toupee with a very bad British accent. Um, Arnold is subbing for Columbo the dog, who was disposed, and then uh, Ralph. We, oh, we didn't mention Al. Alf and Ralph are the perpetual carpenters trying to fix the Douglas's home. Only Ralph, right? And Ralph is a woman. The, oh, part yes. of the gag is as that it's Ralph Waldo Monroe, but but it's a woman, and their brother, and the, yeah, their brother and sister. And Alf and Ralph are a great team because they start off relatively normal, but then get nuttier as they go along. So the deeper you go in the show, when you see Alf and Ralph, they're just – you realize after time they know they're never going to get the bedroom done. And Mr. Douglas kind of knows too. So they're just kind of – he's kind of like subsidizing them by you know letting them work 
and then giving us some sort of money or something, but they just get nuttier as the show goes on. And Ralph falls in love with Hank Kimball, right. which is a which is sort of a plot line that goes. So the show. so Ralph is in the play taking the part of Sophia Loren, which Sophia Loren <laughs> is like a running gag because I've heard her name she referenced like four or five times. So yeah. um, they decide Arnold is going to become a star. Because Lisa is enamored with how great Arnold was playing this part as a dog. So she so she calls the guy that she knows in Hollywood, who is a movie producer, who is played by Oscar Berge, who is another one of these 60... Like, people are... Like, Oscar Berge played the villain a bunch of times in, like, Get Smart and Mission Impossible. Like, he always sort of played, like, a uh, Eastern European slash Nazi bad guy. He and And, like, in the... And he was in a couple Twilight Tunes. But he's another one of those guys. So he, so he's a movie producer. But he, his big star at his studio is a horse. <laughs> but the horse's agent wants too much money. So he's going to replace the horse in his next picture with Arnold. So they take Arnold out to Hollywood. And there's a lot of funny meta stuff about like, Arnold being in variety, Arnold lounging by the pool wearing sunglasses. <laughs> yeah. um, Oliver is like they're taking pictures. Oliver is sitting. Confused. Yeah. Oliver is sitting there. He's he's like holding Arnold's Hawaiian drink or uh, <laughs> like cocktail next to him. So whether or not Arnold is actually drinking it, we're not sure. Yeah. But anyway, so we get to all this. Oh, we've also established throughout the history of the show that not only can people understand Arnold, except for Mr. Mm-hmm. Douglas. But all of the animals can talk to each other. Yes. In in their in their own animal speak, although Arnold eventually learns to bark and meow. Meow, yeah, yeah. But so Arnold is talking to the horse who's he's replaced in this movie. And they're having this in depth conversation, he's like, you know, I'm sorry this had to happen. He's like, you know, I'm and the horse says something to the effect of, the thing that bothers me is, I'm not going to be able to make this movie. I can't have my... And there's a foal standing next to him. So it's the horse and a little horse, and they're talking to Arnold. And this is all subtitled. So he says, I can't afford to send my son to Stanford, so he's going to be drafted. So there's, like, all of a sudden, it's the whole, I'm sending my son to college to avoid going to Vietnam. Yeah. And then Arnold, so then Arnold no-shows, <coughs> Arnold no-shows going on the set, and the, the producer is so angry, he fires Arnold and rehires the horse. So the horse is now back starring in the movie, and his son does not have to go to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. But that's just, like, where it's, did, the, that's, on a show that specializes in out of the blue, that's a very weird left turn. Yeah. Left turn to take. Yeah, because er- earlier on in the series, there's an episode where Arnold gets drafted, and Mr. Douglas, unfortunately, whether he likes it or not, in Hooterville, he becomes known as the Pig Lawyer, famous Pig Lawyer Oliver Wendell Douglas, and it drives him up the wall, and he has to take he has to go to the draft board and explain that Arnold's a pig, and then he ends up getting arrested, and then it ends with. Ralph Monroe uh, getting a uh, draft notice because Ralph is a woman, and uh, so he has to go down there and he gets arrested again. Oh, Oliver, he tries. And and speaking of horses, again, going to the meta nature of this, um, at some point, I don't remember 
where in this in the show's history this is. Mm-hmm. Mr. Haney sells Oliver yes. a talking horse. Mr. Like, Fred. Like yes, Mr. Fred, who only Oliver can hear. Yes. So it's just it's just sassing him, and yeah, it's funny. Yeah, and it and it it kind of sounds like Chill Wills, kind of mm-hmm. like it's probably not really Chill Will. I don't remember what network Mr. Ed was on, but it's like I'm sure he sounds enough like Mr. Ed that people get. Well, it's a talking horse. You're gonna know it's a Mr. Ed joke, but he also does kind of sound like Mr. Ed, so it's even funnier. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's they, and it's a, and again, it's a horse, and only Oliver can hear him, which is an inverse. To Arnold, who everybody can understand, yes. but Oliver. Exactly. I think the the first time they did the subtitles is actually one of my favorite episodes. I, th- I think it's this one. It's Love Comes to Arnold Ziffel, where Arnold falls in love with Cynthia the Basset Hound, Mr. Haney's right. winning hound. And there's just a great scene where um, you see um, Oliver and Lisa are supposed to keep Arnold inside the house. If they let Arnold out and he goes out with Cynthia, Cynthia is not going to be able to race in the trials tomorrow and Haney's going to sue the Ziffles and the Ziffles are going to come after the Douglases for that. And in the end, Oliver can't handle all the howling and oinking back and forth. And so he lets uh, Arnold out. And the next morning you see the sun coming up and there's a beautifully romantic scene of a basset hound and a pig having the most melodramatic dialogue you've ever heard through oinks and barks and all subtitled about how she will run away with him but he says he can't i'm a pig you're a dog it's not going to work and it's absolutely heartbreaking and and it's just i remember watching that and thinking i love this show so much yeah and I, and and cynthia the dog says i'll become a pig for you and he says yes. i can't i can't let you do can't that you do that no, yeah, it's like the most. It's like um, you know, uh, uh, Nelson and what is it? Uh, Nelson and McDonald. You know, the dialogue, operetta style, melodramatic dialogue. It's just so wonderful. And um, in the end, everything's okay. Right. And, and I guess I guess that's also the episode where Lisa, Lisa Mitchquist, Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Julius. Yeah. Who broke that window with the light yonder? That's, that's I remember that. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's yeah. Lisa, Lisa is great. Lisa, my, my mom, my mom is a big fan of Burns and Allen. And she always whenever I have Green Acres on, she'll watch it with me because she she considers Eva Gabor, Lisa character, as close to Gracie as you can get. I noticed that. Yeah, I think you pointed out that one of the times where like Lisa ends up with with Kate from Petticoat Junction, which is funny mm-hmm. because. B. Bennett Durrett had been on Burns and Allen. Yes, yes. That that, that they have a lot, there there was a lot of sort of Burns and Allen style comedy Mm -hmm. with them and with some of the episodes they were in, they're in together. And of course, George Burns used to talk to the camera too and talk to the audience throughout Burns and Allen too. So there was, there was that. I wonder if, was Paul Henning or did, did they... I feel like one of them may have written for Burns and Allen. Burns and Allen was out for so long. Yeah, I, th- passed by. I think I think one of these guys did work. Did I think it's I think it's Paul Henning because I think that's because because I think that's because I, I think that's might be where, like where he knew B. Bernard Durrett from mm-hmm. because she yeah. because she had been on Burns either the TV show or the radio show. And, and, and speaking of kind of kind of uh, on that the heading verse side of it, there, there's an interesting thing where all three shows take place in the same universe. Um, there is there are episodes where 
there specifically there's a Thanksgiving episode of Beverly Hillbillies with the main cast of the Hillbillies Junction and Green Acres having dinner together. So they all know each other and they're all in the same universe. And yet in the world of Green Acres, um, they they watch Beverly Hillbillies on TV. Um, there's an episode of this is one of my favorites. There's an episode of Green Acres called the Beverly Hillbillies. And it's an episode where they're doing a play for the local school to raise money for something. And they write to Mr. Paul Henning in Hollywood and have them send. He sends them some Beverly Hillbilly scripts and they pick a funny one and they're going to do a performance of it. And Mr. Kimball is Jed and Lisa is Granny and um, uh, Oliver is Jethro. And they perform a scene. I, I don't know. I don't think it's from an actual episode of Beverly Hillbillies, but they perform a brief scene from the Beverly Hillbillies live on stage, which is fun. The one thing that I was kind of surprised about when I was looking at, I was looking at like the the whole big like IMDb credit list for the show, mm-hmm. is that there weren't more bigger name '60s guest stars. If that makes, if that makes mm-hmm. there's there's a handful of people who either had already been famous or we know as character actors that are on the show, but I was kind of surprised there weren't more. I don't know if this makes any sense, yeah. but like, I'm, cause like I'm looking at the, like the Wikipedia list of this, like there's a list of like 20 or 30 people, but like mm-hmm. people that of uh, like people would recognize, especially people like listen to this show. So June Foray, who is the voice of, Oh yes. Of, you know, Natasha and Rocky, the flying squirrel, she plays a telephone operator in one of the episodes yep, yep. Where, where Oliver owns the phone company. Bob, That's a nice ser- serialized one. Right. There's four episode run. Yeah. Um, Bob Cummings is in the show and, and these and either I think one of the writers had worked on the Bob Cummings show. Paul, Paul early. created it. Yeah. OK, well, Paul, there you go. Okay. That Bob. Yeah. 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 So Jerry Van Dyke was on the show. Jay Petamalli. Jesse White, Al Lewis, Gordon Jump, Bernie Capel. Al Molinero's on there a couple of times. Right, there's actually, and then we'll, um, Melody Patterson from F Troop, we mentioned yes. earlier, shows up as like one of one of the girls Eb dates once. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the weird one is a lot of people. Pat Morita is in it. Is Pat Morita oh. is is Pat Morita in the Hawaii, the Hawaii episode? He is. He's in the Hawaiian honeymoon backdoor pilot. And we and we talked about backdoor pilots earlier, and like I guess we or we, we briefly mentioned the <coughs> the rural purge that came in the early seventies, but basically CBS. Um, again, I get with uh, I guess you say the way the culture was shifting in the United States, which included television, that All in the Family had just started. And so they kind of decided, CBS especially, that um, that the time of like the shows like the Beverly, like these shows, Beverly Hillbillies, Green Acres, and stuff like that, like their time had come. And so the famous quote was, "They canceled everything with the tree in it." Yeah, including yeah. Inclu- including Lassie. But so yeah, like Lassie. it was it was to make way for more of the like urban, more sophisticated. Uh, studio audience sitcoms that we all, like the Norman Lear kind of style uh, yeah. Brooks James Brooks shows were coming, but they made it like one of the last episodes of Green Acres is a backdoor pilot 
where Oliver and Lisa go on vacation to Hawaii, and they're in this hotel that has, um, they basically, the, the girl who, the daughter of the owner, who I guess would be the star of the show, probably. Um, I think it's Pamela Franklin, I think, if yeah. I remember correctly, but I could be wrong. Well, yeah, well, she, she double books the honeymoon suite, because she has a couple friends of hers who are, couldn't afford their honeymoon, so she says, I'll let you stay in the honeymoon suite for free because you're my friends, not knowing that the Douglases had actually booked it too, so you get a lot of sort of sitcom, mm-hmm. th- that kind of trope of, you yeah. know, switching rooms, you know, two dates, mm-hmm. two dates in one restaurant kind of thing. That was designed as as a backdoor pilot, which obviously didn't go anywhere. Yeah. But it, but it, 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 it's... It's just fun. it's it's funny that Green Acres started with no pilot, made it back to a pilot, and it was one that didn't get picked up as yeah, as as the show goes off the air. Yeah, it's at the at the very yeah at the very end of the show, Jay Summers found out that this rural purge was happening, and so he went away and he wrote he wrote the the last two episodes that aired are backdoor pilots, Hawaiian Honeymoon and the Ex Secretary. And the Ex Secretary, the thing with both of those backdoor pilots is you watch each of them and you get to the end and you think, what would that show have been? What what exactly would the next episode of that show have been? And neither of them are very good, unfortunately. But um, and that that's why I mentioned earlier at the very end of the show, Jay Summers vanishes from the writing credits, and Dan Beaumont joins Dick Chevrolet. Um, that's because Jay Summers was away writing these scripts. But Jay Summers shows up in the end, and the the like I think I mentioned the last episode they did, King Oliver the First, is is the ultimate one where Oliver suggests something and they get out of hand. They end up blowing up the bridge over Simpson Swamp that leads people that takes you into Hooterville apart from the cannonball and they end up sealing themselves off and declaring themselves the kingdom of Hooterville and Oliver becomes the king and there's a there's a joke in that one that I completely forgot about um that's actually another very topical well I think it's a very topical one when did Ronald Reagan become governor of whatever he became governor of first it was the early 70s right it was it was it was either the late 60s or early 70s when he was governor of california yeah okay because because one of the jokes in and this happens uh is it i think it's the mayor of hooterville uh who you see at least twice in the sixth season in that king oliver the first and then in another episode you see him maybe more than twice but he's he's governor or mayor governor lyle talbot and he's a very distinguished gentleman, and his character is one who – he was a movie star in the 40s and 50s, and now he's governor of Hooterville or whatever state Hooterville is in. But the great thing about it is there was a character actor, Western B-movie Western star in the 40s and 50s called Lyle Talbot, and the person they had playing Lyle Talbot is Lyle Talbot. So they actually are making a joke on Ronald Reagan, a politician, becoming uh, – an actor becoming a politician by hiring an actor who would have worked with Ronald Reagan in that time and who wouldn't have done much lately. And they cast him as the mayor of the town, the state, where Hooterville is from. And I always love that. Whenever you see him, I'm like, that's really Lyle Talbot. It's such a weird – it's not something I think – I think you'd have to look at – it's not like Adam West being on Family Guy kind of thing, but it is like kind of like that. Definitely, and again, it makes sense that the show would end on that kind of like metatextual gag too. Mm-hmm. That it just encompasses how the show really is. Well, so uh, before we go, uh, Dan, do you have uh, any fun? We obviously recommend people watch 
go back and watch yes. the show. Whether it, it is it is it one of these shows that's on MeTV or one of these? Uh... I know it is on MeTV. As, okay. As, last time I looked, it was on MeTV. A, co- a couple. We um, yeah, it's on MeTV. I want to say it's on one of the Peacock, Hulu, something like that. Uh, you can. Catch I think. It. And it, yeah, I think I think on the streaming, I think it's actually part of the MGM streaming service oh, but i guess that's right it is mgm but i don't it's they it's sort of so confusing these days anymore about who owns what and is on which network anymore but but as i was saying i figured it would be on me tv because i know when i was looking at the stuff for petticoat that like three of the three of the daughters did a commercial for yes uh for petticoat junction on me tv where they parody the the beginning of the show where they're in the water tower. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the um, it's great now that they are fi- they, since they finally show the black and white episodes of Petticoat Junction. When when they didn't show them, those were the main ones with Kate in them, B. Benaderet, because she, I think, in the fourth season she gets lung cancer and she starts to miss episodes. Then she's not in most of the fifth season and she died at the start of the sixth. I think that's right. So if you if you don't see the black and whites of Petticoat Junction, you're missing pretty much the majority of the episodes with Kate in them, which are the second season of Petticoat Junction is the best. That's the one where Jay Summers wrote or co-wrote the majority of the scripts. And that's one where it kind of takes on not a full on surreal feel, but it gets it gets a little weird. Yeah, that that show has like like we talked about all the rotating daughters before. But they, mm-hmm. like you said, the, the weird thing where she passes away and then. And then she kind of gets replaced by June Lockhart, sort who sort of yes, Doctor Craig, but who quite, who yeah. who like had just been on Lost in Space. Mm-hmm. So it's like a weird like, hey, we're we got another TV mom to put in like our TV mom slot, but like a totally different kind of TV mom. Like that's yeah. that's it doesn't quite it doesn't quite work, unfortunately. Yeah, it's I mean weird. it's it's not as sort of logical as replacing Valerie Harper with Sandy Duncan. Yeah, you know where like I can kind of see how that works. Yeah, they yeah it was it was weird with that because unfortunately Beverly Hillbillies has the same main cast throughout. Green Acres just gradually sort of loses cast members. Um, The original Mrs. Ziffel dies. Um, uh, uh, Alf Monroe, uh, Sid Melton goes on to do Make Room for Granddaddy. Um, which fails, but they never really bring him back. And without him, Ralph isn't in it much. And just secondary characters. And then when Petticoat Junction gets canceled a year before Green Acres and Hillbillies, all those characters are no lo- apart from Sam Drucker are no longer on the show. So the sixth season of Green Acres, the final one, is very funny. But it's also if you're used to the big supporting cast of the earlier seasons, it's a little sparse. Yeah, um, and I don't I don't know how much we said, but there was a I mean there wasn't a lot of interaction between. Hillbillies and Green Acres, but no, but but Petticoat and Green Acres have a decent. I mean, obviously Sam, but like Uncle Joe is in maybe like a a dozen or two dozen episodes. Yeah, yeah, and and they actually do a really nice thing that you at the like like you mentioned earlier. The first episode ends with Oliver and Lisa pulling up to the house, the Haney place, their awful house. And the reason why, if you're asking, why didn't they? If he had money, why didn't they remodel the house? They couldn't. It's a historical landmark. They're not allowed to do anything to it. We learned that in season two or three. Um, uh, but um, uh, so the first episode ends with Lisa starting to cry because the house is horrible. And then the second episode begins with them pulling up to the house. 
and Lisa refusing to move. And Oliver says, this is like the third day in a row we've pulled up to the house and you won't get out of the car. We can't stay at the shady rest forever. And the great thing is that in between the first and the second episode, there's a Petticoat Junction episode that I think involves a wacky raffle that Uncle Joe tries to throw. But in the middle of that episode, all the girls are sitting around with Kate and they're talking. And all of a sudden, Mr. and Mrs. Douglas show up. And they've just come from the end of the first episode of Green Acres. Lisa won't go in the house. Can we stay here until she will? And so everyone gets met and they meet them. So if you watch the first Green Acres, then that episode of Petticoat Junction, which I think is called The Baffling Raffle. Don't quote me on that. And then the second episode of Green Acres, you actually get a beautiful continuity between the shows. And um, and there there is – uh, there, there is quite a bit of continuity when in the sixth season of the Henningverse, which is like 67, 68, 68, 69, that's the one where the hillbillies come to Hooterville for Thanksgiving and Christmas. So you get lots of intermingling there. But then even after that, you get there's a great episode where Oliver yells at Eb for watching TV and Eb, long after he's gone out with Betty Jo, taken her out on a date, hung out with everyone in, in Petticoat Junction, he's watching Petticoat Junction on TV. And Oliver turns off the TV and there's a and Eb has a great rant about how by turning off TV, specifically Betty Co- Petticoat Junction, you are depriving, you know, the producers and all the craftsmen, and all the creative people and even the producers relatives. And the joke there being that Betty Joe, one of the stars of Petticoat Junction, is the producer's daughter. And there's all these great little moments. And that still goes on even after Eb's gone out with the girls on Petticoat Junction. You still get jokes like that on Green Acres. I think much in the same way, I think there are two Hoodervilles and two Oxfords. I think Petticoat Junction and Beverly Hillbillies and the actual stuff that the people on Green Acres get involved with are two different worlds. That's just me. Did, did, did they film those shows like on the same lot together? Were they like at the same studio? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. They were on, uh, it was the film, filmways studios. And that's one of, one of the great meta jokes at the end is um, when you see the Filmways logo comes up during Beverly Hillbillies, a guy says, this has been a Filmways presentation. But when it happens for Green Acres, you hear Ava Gabor say, this has been a Filmways presentation, darling. But yes, they were all those, those were on. I don't know where Hillbillies was done, but Junction and Green Acres were on the Filmways wherever they shot their shows. So they were very adjacent. to one it would, I would say I would certainly hope so for people like. You know, like C.M. Drucker, who was on yes. both shows, you know, like a good majority. You know, I assume Sam is probably like the third or fourth, like most, has the most appearance. Because I, I think I saw the list. It's like Oliver and Lisa are in every episode. Eb is in most, although there's like a time where he goes away. He has he got mono. The actor got mono, and they they and they were making you know they were doing like one episode a week. So if you got if you got mono and had to be out for a month and a half, they write him out of the show. He goes on his honeymoon. Right, he elopes. And then I think I think Sam Drucker is like the next yes. most prolific actor. So yeah, so I would certainly hope for those guys, especially given how intermingled like the cast and the crew were. You would think mm-hmm. it would it would really would have stunk if they weren't like shot yeah. next to each other. And it's and it's it's just it's it's such a it was such a wise idea. I don't know who came up with the idea to set Green Acres in Hooterville, but it's such a smart idea because 
Petticoat Junction, you know, was was an extremely popular show too. Not not quite as popular as the other two, but it 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 was very popular. And in in halfway through the first episode of Green Acres, he goes into Drucker's store, and there's Uncle Joe, there's Mister Ziffel, I think someone else from Petticoat Junction is there. So he immediately walks into this room that so many people watching television at that time would have known and recognized and it's it's it, and it, it's it's great because petticoat junction is on the edge of town where the general store and the train is and it's a farm community so the douglases are in the center of everything where things are a little weird and the interesting thing was scheduling wise that green acres was the show that followed beverly hillbillies and petticoat was on the different night and yes. and there's yeah. a, i think there's at least one season where green acres I think is rated higher, has a higher rating than, than the Hillbillies. I, it could be that I think the second season of Green Acres, I think it was number six. I think that could be the one. That would, in the, that would have been the fourth Beverly Hillbillies. I'd have to look to see. But yeah, there is there is one where it's it's very, very close. But that also, I, I was going to say that also, I assume TV probably worked in the 60s the way it did sort of like when we were growing up in that mm-hmm. The audience builds so that it's not unco- like when you had your like during the classic NBC block that like we grew up with that like the shows didn't necessarily go down like it didn't like Cosby was like number one, but it wasn't like Cosby and then Family Ties was a little less and Cheers was a little less and Night Court was a little less like sometimes it would be like, you know, high, little low and then back yes. and then nine o'clock would go back up again. So it's like not right. So it's not surprising that Green Acres at nine would be slightly rated higher than Beverly Hillbillies at eight thirty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would. Yeah, you see that a lot. Like, uh, like especially like I said with Happy Days of the Vernon Shirley. If you look at the week to weeks, sometimes it's like one of them will be right up at the top, and another one will be eight or nine, and then the next week it'll switch, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I did find out that the last season of Beverly Hillbillies. It was on early in the evening, and All in the Family was on like an hour later on the same network. So that's an extremely interesting evening of television, especially because the the last season of Beverly Hillbillies is very weird. Very weird. It takes serialized um, sitcoms to another level in the ninth season. I'll just leave it at that. I'll say, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it's not like these shows are hard to find, whether it's on no. – no. On MeTV or streaming or on YouTube or and, I you know I guess people still buy you know if people still buy DVDs I still do some yeah. but you know they're Same still here, out there yeah. they're still out there yeah. and it is it is fun to watch because when I wrote the book I watched them in all in broadcast order and that's kind of fun to watch because you do see occasionally like um in the I, I want to say it was like in uh I, I forget where like in 1967 or 66 or 67. Beverly Hillbillies does a, a computer dating episode. Then two weeks later, Green Acres does a computer dating episode. Then somewhere in there, Petticoat Junction has a B plot line where Uncle Joe has done computer dating. So it's like, I'm sure they didn't discuss this. It's just all at the same time, everyone's computer dating. I don't know why it all happened at that moment, but it happened. And you would guess that things were not as sophisticated in the 60s where it wasn't. Yes. Again, Paul Henning was not sitting in his office making sure all the I I mean other than like when they were directly related, you know like yes, exactly. I'm sure he wasn't yeah he wasn't worried that the plot of Beverly Hillbillies this week in March 1965 was a little too yes. similar 
to the plot of Petticoat Junction that week. You know what I mean? It's just they they are what the, they are what they are. And the joy of the sh- the joy of the show is that they could all do it differently because no one in Beverly Hillbillies is married, so it's all about them trying to find um, mates, just like with Uncle Joe trying to find a mate. But in in Green Acres, it's Lisa, it's Oliver proving to Lisa that computers are great, doing the computer dating thing, and discover that the computer says they should never have gotten married. So so it's it's like some slight variations on that, which is which is fun to watch, like because you you kind of don't expect that in the '60s. You know, like if I'm if I'm sitting down today and I'm watching The Flash and, you know, Arrow and Legends of Tomorrow and Supergirl and Batwoman, I'm expecting things to match up and to link together. But I'm not expecting random sitcoms in the second half of the 60s to have moments where I'm like, oh, wow, they all kind of dovetail together. And it's 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 really I mean, I, I will say it's not like a modern show where you go to like every week you're going to see it. It's something like if you're watching it maybe once every five or six episodes you'll be like oh wow oh wow that was cool which is which is still cool i think well that's um we can we can wrap up on this i mean well, I think we yeah. we may have briefly mentioned it but uh, speaking of things that don't happen all the time i mean one of the things that i think the show may be no, known for now and again talking about the meta text is all the credit gags and i don't remember oh, yes, i don't gags. we may have talked about this before we started but like one of the things that sort of opened my eyes to how weird and metatextual the show was are the credit gags. And there aren't really that many when you think about how many episodes of the show there were. But, you know, so there may be like a dozen, maybe two dozen. But there are gags where <coughs> the characters interact with the show credits. Either they see them, either they see them on screen or one episode, Lisa's making her hot cakes and the, the the name of the producer and the writers are written on the pancakes when she flips them over. Mm-hmm. And the director's name's on the toast. There's yeah. one where they're on Mr. Haney's pull-down sign on his truck. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's... Uh, there, we, there's we mentioned, one of my... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, there's one where uh, Sam and a bunch of the guys are standing around in the general store. And you mentioned this... Like you can tell the way the shot is framed, something is going to happen Strange in the, in, in, in the yeah. lower third, and they're talking about whatever the plot is, and and I think Hank Kimball says, we might as well wait until the name's drawn because nobody's going to pay attention to what we say. And they all sit down and get very comfortable as executive producer Paul Henning, written by Jay Summers, Dick Chevrolet, directed by Richard L. Bear. Those are the three. They come up over and over again. And then they and then they're like, okay, now we can start. Now or yeah, and and I think there's like an edit. Right there, where suddenly everything is framed properly again, so you know that the the credits are done. Right, and there's one where there's a little girl who's staying with the Douglases. Oh yes, Lori. Yeah. And and they're sitting in the living room, like looking at the fireplace, and the credits come up, and then uh, Oliver's like, "What are you two doing?" And she's like, "We're we're watching the names." And Lisa says, "I figured if she's going to be staying with us, she should get used to seeing the names." Yeah. And then they even parody the na- then they parody it a couple times where they go through the credits and mm-hmm. Oliver is leaving the bedroom and one of the running gags is like the doors don't work mm-hmm. and the closet their their walk-in wardrobe closet actually goes to the outside of the house mm-hmm. but when you open the door the door slides all the way through the closet and it falls on the ground. That's like a running mm-hmm. gag. And they do that, and then it says, Carpentry by Alf and Ralph Monroe. Oh, yeah. And Oliver says, they don't get a credit for that. 
Yeah. So they're <laughs> even par- they're even like parodying the meta text. Yeah, yeah, and the, there's the 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 ones are there. Yeah, the very first one is basically they just kind of show up, and Lisa's confused by it. But then eventually, like, there's one where they show up, and Oliver's kind of like trying to get the episode going, but Lisa points out that you know their mothers want to see their names, you know their sons' names on the screen. So please just wait. And so they wait, and then um, there's the one yeah where they the you don't see them in the beginning, but they show up at the end when the lights are turned out in the bedroom because, and that's a great one because you, you expect them to show up. It's like, it's like watching an episode of Monty Python's flying circus where you're sitting there waiting for the opening credits to happen. And you're like, what, where are the credits? Where are the credits? You know, and sometimes in Python, they don't show up until like 15 or 20 minutes into the episode. And this one, those three credits don't show up until the end. And then Fred Ziffel is attacked by the credits in one episode where he walks up to the front door to knock on it. All of a sudden the credit swoops in. And he has to jump out of the way, and then he tries to catch the credit. Oh, they do a lot of stuff with them. I think they appear on underpants or something like that, underwear that Lisa's hanging on the line at one point. Oh, I know there's one where Oliver is taking a shower, and the, and, and the shower is outside, and like Lisa hands him the towel, and the towel has somebody's name on it. And then he puts his bathrobe on, and the bathrobe has somebody's name on the back. <laughs> like he's advertising. Yeah. Right. It's like It's like, you know... In theory, there's only like a finite number of ways to really milk this gag, but they probably find almost all of them. And there's a they, bunch they of do a pr- yeah, and there's a bunch of other sort of really funny like metatextual one-offs. Like there's one where Eb is Eb is humming the theme song to the TV show, oh, yes. and then he sings one of Eva Gabor's lines, but it's Eva Gabor's voice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's one where. <laughs> Yeah, there's one where Eb is talking out of sync, like he's in a Godzilla movie, yes. and he keeps hitting his head. Like one time, his mouth moves, and then the words comes out, and then he hits his head, and then the next time the words come out, and then his mouth moves, mm-hmm. and then he's like, and then by the end he's like, I gotta get me some aspirin because I keep hitting myself in the head. There, there are all sorts of yeah. There's the, like you mentioned that the, the flying saucer episode. Whenever they try to say something that the the UFO the aliens don't want them to say to the Project Blue Book people, it comes out as bleep bleep. So they'll say something like, "And the doors on the hatch open, and these two bleep bleep stepped out, and bleep bleep bleep." And the guy from Blue Book says, "Why do you keep doing that? What you keep saying bleep bleep?" No, I don't. And for some reason, they they keep saying bleep bleep. And then uh, Eb has a great bit where Oliver is working on the track. And there are other gags like that he can never get the tractor to work. Oliver is always making speeches about the great American farmer because what he believes the great American farmer is, the show shows, is not like that at all. But whenever he makes a speech about the farmer, someone someone somewhere starts playing Yankee Doodle on like a fife and drums and, and stuff, and everyone can hear it. They can hear this music playing, but he can't. So every time he makes a speech – and there's one episode where Oliver takes Lisa into the bedroom. They close the door, and the music keeps playing, and Lisa has to come out and ask them to stop playing the music because they're going to bed. And so there's a, there's a lot of these great little moments. And where and Eb, as the show goes along, yeah, Eb keeps doing weirder and weirder things like walking – Oliver's on the tractor. He looks up, and he sees a board go by with no one holding it. Or, or wait a minute. No, no. He sees Eb going by. That's the actual original joke. He sees Eb's go by, Eb goes by with the board, says, good morning, Mr. Douglas. And the board just keeps going by like it's 20 or 30 feet long. And then Eb is on the other end of the board. And morning, Mr. Douglas. And Eb says, how did you do that? 
And he says, I saw Laurel and Hardy do this on the TV last night. I don't know how they did it, but it really works. And that is a Laurel and Hardy joke from the finishing touch. One of the Laurel and Hardy shorts, except it's a little more elaborate than the Laurel and Hardy. Uh, was, yeah, there are a lot of great uh, I was going to say, you know, like talking about these, a lot of these sound like vaudeville slash Oliver Hart, yes. o- Hart Oliver, uh, um, Laurel and Hardy or Marx Brothers. Yeah, I mean, yes. again, you can tell that the guys that created the show came from that background, and that it's infused with it. And people do point, and then I'll stop talking. But people do point out that um, uh, that sort of the 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 structure of the show is very much based on like Fibber McGee and Molly or Jack Benny from like the forties and such where it's, you have a main couple and then these other characters just keep coming in. They do their shtick and then go, which was kind of a, this is more sitcom in green acres, but it's very much like if you ever listen to Fibber McGee and Molly, it's basically um, uh, McGee and Molly hanging out at their house and these people come up, they do some shtick, they go. And that's kind of, kind of in some ways how this is, but not, not quite, but kind of. Great. Uh, Dan, I want to thank you very much uh, for for doing the show. Like we said, you've got a whole book uh, about these shows that's called From Beverly Hills to Hooterville. Um, Do you have any other books about any other any shows? Uh, The the, the other books I have, I have a a self-published novel, which is Kindle only, uh, which you can get on Amazon called Arthur Bertrand and Constance. It's a it's a kid's book about a little girl whose parents are getting a divorce. She's very lonely. She has she's in a new town. She has no friends. And one day her bedsheet and pillowcase come to life and they go on adventures. I have then I have unfortunately this second my second book is out of print, co-written with uh, uh, another person. It's called Bleeding Skull, a 1980s trash horror odyssey. It's a book on low budget 1980s horror films. And then my third book is 80s action movies on the cheap, which is still in print. Uh, through McFarland Books in North Carolina, it's on low-budget '80s action movies. Great, those are those are definitely things in the in the pod wheelhouse. So, uh, people, oh, well, yeah, people, people should people should definitely check. Yeah, I was gonna say that sounds like uh, a good topic to maybe have you back in the future to talk about. I I I'd love to. We can we can gab on about them for for an hour. It'll be great. I would say that's the. I mean, one of the great things about sort of like being a pop culture nerd is having like Irons in many pop culture fires. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, like, if it's not old TV, it's comic books. And if it's not comic books, it's sports. And if it's not sports, it's horror movies. You know what I mean? It's, there's yeah, strange movies or just whatever. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so uh, everybody can check. Uh, you're on social media too, right? Yes, yes. I'm on Twitter at the moment. At the moment, your best place to go is it? it's at E Supertrain. As in the TV show one, I have a podcast called Eventually Super Train, which covers short-lived TV shows. Currently, recovering Monster Squad, the early, the mid '70s Saturday morning kids show, uh, Luke Ann, which was '70s uh, Wolf Boy brought into civilization show, and Galactica 1980. So at E Super Train one, and then I'm just Daniel Budnick on um, Facebook. That's cool. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't remember if this was before we started or not, but you said you listened to small episodes. Um, last year, yeah, yeah. Last year, for, this is one you should definitely go back and listen to. Then, last year for Halloween, on the podcast network that one of the shows is on, um, I did an episode about the real Ghostbusters. Oh, I love it! Oh, I love them. Yeah, or it's a great show too. Yeah, that that I might cover that one day too. Yeah, yeah like, like I said, um, like I mentioned, you know, I love F Troop. So yes. So. 
uh, real ghost, yeah. real real ghost. Well, it's funny. Um, the guy who runs the network just did an episode about Gilligan's Island, mm. and he was talking about the, the the movies and stuff like that. And he had never seen the Gillig the Harlem Globetrotters episode. He's talking about. <laughs> And he said, he was like, oh, you know, and then they did a cartoon, and, you know, and, you know, they did Gilligan's Planet, and da 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 da, da. Yes. And I, and so, when I listened to it, and he didn't mention something, and I, like, sent him an email, and I'm like, have you ever seen Dusty's Trail? Oh, yes. And he, with two of the gals from Petticoat Junction. In it. Right, and he, he had never heard of it, and I said, okay, imagine Gilligan's Island <laughs> as a wagon train. As wag as a as a lost wagon train, with the same formula, but instead of Alan Hale, it's Forrest Tucker. Yeah. And he's like, this sounds like it's he's like this sounds like it's very very bad. And I'm like, it was very very. I because I think it lasted. I think it lasted like a half a season. I want to say 15 episodes. Yeah. You know, and it, half a yeah, and it's the kind of thing where it's like Bob Denver may have been like a. It's like if Bob Denver is like maybe a little too old to be Gilligan, he's like definitely a little bit too, too old. old to be to be <laughs> yeah. Dusty and Dusty Trails. Yeah, and the weirdest thing about that was that they actually made a theatrical film, The Wackiest Wagon in the West. They took four episodes, took out the laugh track, and edited them together and released it theat. It was only very briefly they released it theatrically, but it's so weird. It's it's well, weird. see, that's like that's like how we were talking. They could have done that with the first four episodes of Petticoat. They could have, yeah. Definitely. You know, what I mean, that could have easily been like a mini movie or at least a a TV movie. Yeah, there it's yeah, it's yeah. there's so much bad. Like as much as we love Green Acres for being good, there's almost it, it, it's funny that like I've gotten older and I I've kind of weirdly grown out of like the mockery thing like like i was yeah, a, like 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 i was a huge like when i was in my 20s and we were in grad school we did that thing where we would rent bad movies on friday night to watch them and make fun of them and of course you know that's like the height of mystery science theater you know which yeah, exactly. which i love it but it's like now like i've kind of gotten to the point of like not that it's mean but like like I don't get the same enjoyment out of like yeah. that kind of thing, but yet on the other hand, there's also like some stuff that like it's so bad it's good. Yeah, you that, have to say something almost. To tell well, like, you like respond. You were talking about super. Well, I was just talking. Somebody on Blue Sky was talking about the Sergeant Pepper movie. Oh sure, yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> I love the Sgt. Pepper movie uh-huh. because of how bad it is. Yeah. You know, from around that same time, Sex Tat, the Mae West movie. I love that movie. That's so. Well, where'd it come from? Why'd they make it? Where? What? What is it? I just, yeah. That's. I, I think with like something like Dusty's Trail to me, it's it's that like when I watched Wackiest Wagon in the West or whatever it is for or the East or whatever the heck it was like a couple of years ago. I don't know why I watched it, but it's so unfunny but everyone's trying so hard you want you need to respond to it in some fashion and apart from turning it off or getting angry at it sometimes there's really nothing to do but say stuff like why did you do that oh come on uh and it's 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 weird because yeah i somewhere along the way i grew out of the putting on stuff and and making fun of it thing i try to just watch and enjoy what's there 
Um, but sometimes there are just things that you have to you have to respond to. <laughs> well, it's funny you're talking about Super Train, and there's a girl I work with who like I had only met like last year because we got put on the same project together, mm-hmm. and I learned that, I mean, and she's like in her late twenties or early thirties, so she's like a generation removed from from like you and me, mm-hmm. and but she's a big fan of Vincent Price. Oh, cool. Which is cool. And so, you know, she knows all this other stuff. And I was telling her, I'm like, have you ever seen, like, she knew, like, all the, the big stuff. And then, like, and I'm so, I'm, you know, like, she'd never heard of Dr. Goldfoot. <laughs> even though I'm like, you see, you've seen Austin Powers, right? And I'm like, she's like, yeah. I'm like, basically, Austin Powers took the plot of this movie. Uh, yeah. I mean, among the other things that, like, Mike Myers based it on. But then, so, like, we were, like, sitting around one day, and I was, like, scrolling through stuff on YouTube, and we get to, and I can't, I can't for the life of me remember, but, like, the the train show that Vincent Price does. Oh, yes, yeah, I know that one, yeah, yeah. That's, like, that's, like, Fantasy Island, it's, it's, it's less, it's less Love Boat, but it's Fantasy Island, but set on a train. Yeah. And it goes back and forth in time. And she's like, I've never heard of this, and I'm like, I'm like, there's only like three or four episodes, I think. Yeah, there ain't a lot of it. And, and I was like, here, just watch it. And she like watched it, and she's like, oh my god, I like. And like one of the guest stars was like somebody famous too, because uh, it was like him and his wife, like like Carol Brown was like the one, other yeah. the other person in it. And then there's like somebody that's like the conductor or like the engineer or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like one of the people. Yeah, I- in like the fan, like one of the guest stars for like Fantasy Island Love Boat was like somebody like well known, and she's like I never knew about this, and I was just like because I, I texted this funny guy, I texted her, I think Thursday because Vincent Price was it was Vincent Price Day on Turner Classic, oh because it was for for Summer Under the Stars, and mm-hmm. she's like oh I completely forgot because I told her like a month ago, but like it's funny you look at that list and. There's a movie that I think I've only read about that I haven't seen before called what's it called? It's called like The Baron of Arizona. Oh yeah, I, yeah. The I, one where like I vaguely know that. It's like yeah. it's it's a western that's like it's based on a real person who's like this guy who tried to buy up all the land in Arizona before it became a state in like the 1880s or whatever, and like Vincent Price is the star of it, and she's but that's apparently that was like his first. Well, yeah, I, it, I watch. It's funny because I watched the Robert Osborne intro on TCM. Like I didn't watch the movie yet, but I watched the intro, and they're talking about how like it's this low budget studio, and they wanted somebody more famous to to be in the movie, but it was too expensive for this small studio. Like it was like smaller than Republic, you no, know what I mean? No. So so they got Vincent Price, who had been in a bunch of sort of like prestige historical dramas. You know, like, he had been in Laura at that point, and he'd been Gaslight. But, like, he hadn't made any of the... It was 1950s, so he hadn't made any of the horror yet. Yeah. So it's weird that it's, like, he, it's this Western, and he's kind of playing, like, a bad guy. And then, you know, then a couple years later, is like, he makes House of Wax, and then it's off to the races yeah. with the horror. But it's... It's just... It's, it's great to find, like, guys... Actors you think you know, especially who have been mm-hmm. typecast... Especially early in their careers, like he's in. Oh crap! What's that? Like the 
Vincent Price is like I don't think he's even a bad guy in it, but like the like the Lourdes movie about like the girl like the Oh yeah. <coughs> that one. Yeah. Like he's yes, yes. like he's like one of the French <coughs> government people that comes to investigate her claims about seeing the Virgin Mary or whatever. Yeah. But like he shows up and stuff and you're like, is that Vincent Price? But the and what's funny is he's not, but he's not, he like he's not the bad guy. But you expect it to yeah. be the bad guy because it's Vincent Price, but it's before Vincent Price was the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Or known yeah. as a bad guy, for lack of a term. Anyway, you know, we could go, I'm sure we could go on forever. And I definitely, I was going to say, I definitely need to have, like, you are a kindred, I can already tell you're a kindred spirit. So I definitely think we need, <laughs> to, we need to have you back on to talk about some, like, old TV again in the future. I'd love to. Yeah, I'd, I just say one more thing. I do do another uh, podcast uh, called uh, the Made for TV Mayhem Show. Uh, I do that with uh, my friend Amanda Reyes, who is a writer, and she's written a book called Are You in the House Alone? The TV Movie Companion. She's a writer, researcher. Um, she appears on a lot of um, commentaries and writing lots of booklets for uh, sorted um, Arrow films, Vinegar Syndrome, stuff like that. And our other host is a guy named Nathan Johnson, who's one of the hosts of the Hysteria Continues, which is a slasher film podcast. And we've been doing the podcast for about five years now, and we cover made-for-TV movies, which is a, a genre that doesn't get a lot of love, although it's getting slowly more and more love as time goes on. But that's, well, that's one that I'm on to. Well, that's funny. The, I guess I'll ask you about this while, while we go, since it just came up in the last podcast that I did, um, I did not remember that CBS did a made-for-TV movie about Oppenheimer. That mm. that's called like One Day or something like that. Like, yeah, it, it came out the same year as Fat Man and a Little Boy, the Paul Newman movie about Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was doing this, yeah. I was doing this thing because, like, well, like I said, I did I did something on Nola Gay, the OMD no, song. Yeah, yeah. And then I was doing the th- I was like, so I was going to talk about Fat Man and Little Boy since Oppenheimer's out. And then I'm looking at, and I was like, I don't remember this TV movie. And it's got like a, not a weird cast, but it's a very like late 1980s cast. Like, okay, like, yeah. like two, like, um, like two of the main cast from LA Law are in it. Like Michael Tucker's, oh, wow. like okay. Michael, Michael Tucker's in it and like Richard Dysart's in it. And then oh, it's wow. and then it's got uh-huh. a and then it's got a bunch of like other people you would know from like late eighties TV, mm-hmm. and it's 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 like a lot more star studded like, you know it, this one has like FDR and Truman are in it when like some of these other movies don't have them or some of, and you're just mm-hmm. and you're like I totally do not remember this yeah. like just, yeah, just, I, just talking about TV movies that mm-hmm. jogged my memory since I just talked about it recently. Yeah, I I haven't seen that. I I I I vaguely know that. I think I've seen the the in a, in a book. I think I, I think I've come across that, that title in a book, but I have not. I have not seen that one. But yeah, it's always surprising how many TV movies they made and how many things they covered when you look at it over the years. We we've covered a lot of stuff on there. And, and uh, I my favorite era is sort of the '70s when they were kind of doing a lot of weird things. Well, I'm sure it's almost – I'm sure like now if you told – if you were to tell like younger people – one, if you had to explain how network TV worked to younger people probably. But like <laughs> that, but like that you had like the NBC mystery movie where mm-hmm. it was like – it was like it's a series but it's a movie. And it's yes. – and it wrote – and there's a wheel. And so there's like mm-hmm. three – there's like three – there's like three series that rotate every week. 
So, like, mm-hmm. Columbo, you only see, like, Columbo once a month. And it's a movie, but it's a TV show. Yeah, I think yeah the wheel the wheel pro I always like a good wheel program yeah but it's a it would I, I would think that would be difficult to explain yeah and 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 to just bring it back to Green Acres real quick one of the shows that got canceled in the rural purge was the Virginian which was the first and only apart from one season wagon train ninety minute western that means each episode was about seventy five minutes long the length of a short film it's so. funny it's funny how. I mean, other than Playhouse 90, I couldn't think of, you know, very many successful or ever 90-minute. Yeah. To, which is funny because this is a completely divergent topic, but 90, <laughs> not, but like 90 minutes is actually the perfect length for a wrestling show. Like in 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 the in the old days, in the old territorial uh-huh. days, like mm-hmm. if like if you actually look at various TVs from that time. Like, an hour isn't long enough, and two hours is too many. But, like, but, 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 but when they had met, when they had wrestling in Memphis, it was 90 minutes, and that had like a 70 share. It was like, it was like the biggest, it got got primetime TV ratings on Saturday mornings in Memphis in the 70s. Wow. Wow. But yeah, yeah, I was. Say too with TV movies. My favorite length of TV movies are the ninety-minute ones, like from the yeah, you know, like your Night Stalker, and 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 similar ones like that. The just a movie that's about like seventy-two to seventy-five minutes long, perfect. Yeah, it's, that's that's just that's that's how I feel now when I go to the theater. It's like you know if if, <laughs> if if there's a movie that's like two hours long, it's like oh thank goodness. It's like you know I you know I've had enough. I've had enough of, like, the three-hour superhero movie. It's yeah. like three hours – superhero movies do not need to be three hours long. You're not no, – no, you're, you're not You're not doing Shakespeare. You know, yes. I, I think a good superhero movie is, like, two hours and six minutes. Just a little over two hours. That's credits. That's mostly credits over two hours. Just a, That's a good length. I'm like, plus they make more money. I was – I told, like, uh, I think when I went to see the the Nintendo movie, like it's like mm-hmm. just over a little over an hour and a half long. So I'm like it's perfect. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. and it's going to it's like it's no wonder it was like number 1 for like a month because yes. They got like three more showings than yes. whatever sort of drama was out there cuz I'm like I'm like you know in the old days it was like, you know, noon 2 4 6 8 10. It's like you got all your screenings mm-hmm. in and you got your preview and whatever in your cartoon. Bing bam boom, you're done. But yeah, so Dan, thanks again. I definitely want to. We'll definitely have oh, you yeah, back to, to talk about yeah, some other stuff. I know we we tried to end the show like this is this is when I know it, it's been a fun show. It's like when I've ended when I've tried to end the show like three times, but we found more topics to talk about. Which means I'm not saying another word after this sentence. Yeah, okay, so people check out Dan's other books and his podcasts, and we will talk to everybody next time. Green is a place for me. To be out so see I need a woman to be my guy. Keep man had just give me that countryside. New York is where I'd rather be. I don't know nothing about sewing things, but I guess I'll do just what I gotta do. Oh, darling, I love you, but give me Park Avenue. That's sure. Fresh air. Times Square. You're my wife. Oh, goodbye, city life. Green air.